My mother was blue, a pale blue mixed with the colour of ashes. Strangely, when I found her at home that January morning, her hands were darker than her face. Her knuckles looked as though they had been splashed with ink. My mother had been dead for several days. I don't know how many seconds or possibly minutes I needed to take this in, despite how obvious it was. My mother was lying on her bed, unresponsive to all entreaties. It was a very long time, a clumsy, frantic time, until a cry came from my lungs, as though I had been holding my breath for several minutes. Today, more than two years later, that still puzzles me. How did my brain manage to keep the perception of my mother's body at such a distance, especially its smell? How could it take so long to accept the information that lay before it? That's not the only question her death left me with. Four or five weeks later, in an unusually impenetrable state of numbness, I received the bookseller's prize for a novel which featured a mother walled up in herself and withdrawn from everything, who regains her ability to speak after years of silence. I gave my own mother a copy of the book before it came out, probably feeling proud of having completed a new novel, but also conscious, even through fiction, of turning the knife in the wound. I have no memory of where the prize-giving took place, nor of the ceremony itself. I don't think the terror had left me, and yet I smiled. A few years earlier, when the father of my children reproached me for rushing headlong into the future, he mentioned my annoying ability to put on a brave face, whatever the circumstances. I had self-importantly told him that I was in life. I kept smiling at the dinner in my honor. My only concern was to remain upright, then seated, not to suddenly collapse into my plate or plunge headfirst as I had done at the age of twelve into an empty swimming pool. I remember the physical, indeed athletic dimension this effort to hold on required, even if no one was taken in. It seemed to me better to contain the sadness, to bottle it up, muffle it, silence it until I was finally alone, rather than give in to what could only have been a long howl or, even worse, a deep moan, and would undoubtedly have prostrated me on the floor. Over the past few months, events in my life had sped up markedly, and life had once again set the bar too high. And so, it seemed to me, there was nothing else to do except put a brave face on it, or else face up to it, even if it meant pretending. And as far as that is concerned, I have known for a long time that it's better to remain upright than lie down, and better to avoid looking down. In the months that followed, I wrote another book I had been planning for several months. In hindsight, I don't know how I managed it, except that there was nothing else to do once the children had gone to school and I was in the void. Nothing apart from that chair waiting in front of the computer, Nowhere else for me to sit. I mean, nowhere to put myself. After eleven years with the same company, and a long confrontation which had left me feeling drained, I had just been sacked. I was conscious of feeling a kind of dizziness when I found Lucille at home, so blue and still. And then the dizziness turned into terror, and the terror to a kind of fog. I wrote every day, and no one but me knows how much that book which has nothing to do with my mother, 
nonetheless bears the imprint of her death and the state of mind it left me in. And then that book came out, and there was no mother to leave hilarious messages on my answering machine about my TV appearances. One evening that same winter, on our way back from an appointment at the dentist's, as we walked side by side on the narrow pavement on the Rue de la Folie Méricourt, my son asked me, without warning or anything in our preceding conversation which could have led him to it. Did Grandma commit suicide, in a sense?